if you take it the way that engineers would think, they see a task out there and then they build an AI system. So imagine you know, a supervised learning system where you have labeled data and you can make predictions based on uh, you know, prior user behavior or something. I think self-driving cars are a good example. How do you come up with a self-driving car? Well, you're not going to script all the rules of everything that might happen on the road. You're not doing that. You know, we tried, but it's impossible. It's too complex. What we do instead is that we follow drivers as they drive, and we record all the data from the driver's behavior and all the sensors and the inputs in the car from, you know, the location to the LiDAR or, so, or you know, uh, cameras or whatever it is that, uh, uh, you know, that, that the machine is equipped with, and you store all that. And then what you do is that you build a predictive model that takes all those uh, uh, inputs and tries to predict the driver behavior. And eventually, it will learn to do what a driver would do. So a lot of AI systems are really learning to imitate the human. That's what the way that a lot of this stuff works. There are different types of AI, you know, reinforcement learning. I mean, there's a lot of different types of AI, but a lot of them are of this variety. And uh, so they are naturally tailored to this idea of replacing the human. They're copying the humans so they can take care of the task, they can take the task. And uh, I think that's, you know, very important and useful. I can't wait for self-driving cars to, to really be everywhere, but uh, as an example. But it's also a very limited way of thinking about it. I mean, the, the, in many situations, what we ought to be thinking more about is what AI can do to make us more productive, more successful, Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Future of Product. Today, my guest is Stefano Petroni, a warden professor and behavioral scientist researching the psychology of artificial intelligence to understand consumer reactions and adoption patterns. Uh, Stefano, I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, would you mind telling us a bit about your background just so we can get started? Hi, Max. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a behavioral scientist and a professor of marketing at the Wharton School, part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And here I do research and I teach on the topics of marketing, branding, and mostly technology and artificial intelligence. I'm also the co-director of a new center we're just starting out called AI at Wharton, which is meant to bring all the work around AI across the Wharton School together in one, uh, one platform. So I'm excited about that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Would you mind um, talking a little bit about, you know, what got you into artificial intelligence? What motivated you to research this problem? Yeah, happy to. I'm, uh, I'm originally from Italy. I did my uh, PhD in the, uh, in the UK, and then I landed a job as assistant professor already quite a while ago in the Netherlands, in a city called Rotterdam. And uh, there I was for a while. And then uh, um, around 2014, I was promoted to full professor there. And in the Netherlands, it's a big deal. You give a public lecture, the lecture gets printed as a book, you have all the professors wearing a toga listening to you. So typically people take you know, a moment of reflection when they give this talk and they think about what they've done and what ties together the research that they've done and, and what is the impact of it all. And so I did that. And at that time, I think it's probably quite common. I don't know if it's also kind of like a midlife crisis kind of thing, but I started feeling a somewhat tired uh, and maybe, you know, fed up with doing the same thing again and wondering what's next, what can I do that would be exciting and, and important. And just around that time, it happened to be when the first really striking breakthroughs were coming about in the era of AI. This is when deep learning was really moving out of the labs into the real world. We had the first 
test drive from self-driving cars at Google. We had, you know, Siri and uh, uh, IBM's Watson and things like that. And I was looking at this and thinking, wow, I think, you know, we're just starting. This is going to change everything. It's going to get better very quickly. It's going to, you know, be disseminated across many industries and products. And it's going to make a difference to a lot of things that we care about. And yet, if I was looking around in behavioral science, almost nobody was working on this topic. So I thought it was a huge opportunity. It was important for, uh, you know, the future of uh, my children and my students. And I felt this was something that, uh, you know, we could do a lot of interesting work on. So that's how I got into it. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, I'm, you know, more excited than ever. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I'm really grateful for people like you who, you know, um, dedicate their research to this topic, right? Because I think up until even maybe the last year or so, uh, the pop kind of conscious has understood that AI is a, is a part of technology, but hasn't really uh, seen the leaps and bounds that this technology has made um, in those 10 years that you were talking about. Um, I can only yeah, imagine. To me, I mean, that's something I find slightly frustrating is a lot of the conversations around AI in the popular press, you know, it sounds more like, you know, killer robots and, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, Terminator than, uh, you know, <laughs> so I think a lot of it is kind of like a bit hysterical, a bit maybe, you know, not really looking at the things that matter, I think. I mean, there's a lot of also very good commentary, of course, but uh, uh, certainly there's room for improvement. And, um, you know, just look at the adoption of uh, the first generative AI engines. If you, if you look at, you know, ChatGPT, obviously, MidJourney, thing like that. I mean, we've never seen anything like that. I think, you know, this is a, a lot of people are aware of this, but there hasn't been never another product that has been been adopted so rapidly as ChatGPT. Never happened. I mean, this was, I think, about seven weeks it took to reach 100 million, you know, users. That's crazy. Think about it. Yeah, absolutely unprecedented. Um, can I ask, uh, just from your kind of expert perspective, what do you attribute ChatGPT being the breakout tool to? Well, I mean, it works. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right. No, and uh, and uh, OpenAI went. Uh, you know, they, they they were. I think they've been amazing. I mean, what they've done is to first create a uh, fantastic product. I think, in many ways, GPT. You know, then three point five. Now GPT four is in many ways still you know the best at doing a lot of things. But also, I think they um, managed to build guardrails around it that made it safe or, you know, as safe as I think reasonably could be expected to be um, to put out there. And then they scaled it incredibly fast. And I think also the business model of having it free for, uh, you know, for users meant that they could collect an enormous amount of data uh, about, uh, you know, what people do with this thing. And, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, proven, proven a very good move now. I actually you know, I ran a session with Google executives uh, a while ago, and we had a very interesting conversation about about that because the GPT, the transformer architecture on which you know ChatGPT is built on, is actually a Google invention. I mean, it, it was from Google that came up with the transformer models, and uh, in many ways, Google is really at the leading edge of a lot of these developments, of course. But the interesting to realize that Google is not OpenAI. You know, yeah. OpenAI is a small, nimbler operator. 
you know, Google is a massive organization with enormous scrutiny and responsibility. Also, obviously, on the more negative side, you know, more bureaucratic, harder to move, maybe a little bit more conservative than, uh, you know, just a startup, basically. And so I think the combination of elements meant that uh, I don't think it could have been Google, actually. I think it had to be someone like OpenAI um, making a move like that. And then, of course, that, you know, opened the door to a lot of other players to... to uh, um, to think about what this would uh, would do, and I think Microsoft has been obviously the ones that have uh, you know benefited the most. I would say, and uh, I expect that we'll see you know the GPT model being rolled out through a lot of different uh, Microsoft products. And uh, there's so many uses you can have just in the office suite. You know, uh, yeah, it's quite an inbuilt advantage, right? Um... I think, and you're spot on with the uh, the kind of incumbent versus uh, young and nimble and small companies, right? Uh, that ability to do things that are at Google probably would have a very long and lengthy bureaucratic review. If you're open AI, that is a massive advantage. I mean, if, even beyond that, it's simply two brands are not alike. And I think mm-hmm. Google has a position they could not take a chance right. the way that maybe uh, um, in open AI could take, for example, Microsoft, the the before this OpenAI thing, yeah. uh, collab- you know, partnership with the um, with OpenAI. What Microsoft was famous for in the context of chatbots was this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, infamous Thai bot that within twenty four yeah. hours had become super racist. Yeah, you know, it was awful, right? And uh, that's there. Uh, for so you can see how you know right. a company <laughs> that's certainly dangerous. So they could. OpenAI, you know, kudos to them. They did it in a way that uh, worked. And then now there are others. And so I think Anthropic is doing a great job and, and obviously Google. And so it's a, you know, it's a great space. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So just to, to kind of uh, specify down into your research a little bit, um, one of the major things that you discuss and research is the kind of possibility of automation becoming, you know, somewhat of a threat to personal identity, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about it actually before recording, but I would love to kind of talk about how you arrived at that topic um, and kind of how you see AI today impacting personal identity. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it may be surprising, but I study AI, but I'm, I'm not a computer scientist or an engineer. Uh, I don't study, I don't build AI systems. I study the impact of AI systems. So I'm, in fact... My training uh, before my PhD was in statistics, and then I did the PhD in uh, marketing and, and decision making. And so I'm kind of trying, and I think this is a space that excites me because it's a combination of uh, economics, psychology, and statistics, you know, where you can uh, um, try to understand how the statistical techniques are built, how, how they work, and then as a result of that, the kind of impact that they can have in conjunction with user behavior and the use of psychology. So I don't think you're able to understand the impact of these platforms without understanding psychology too. Uh, you need both. And so I, I'm, I have this kind of like a sort of like in-between uh, position that I think give me, an, I think, a, a useful vantage point to try to, to uh, you know, unravel some of the implications of, um, of the recent inventions and improvements. And so with regard to identity, this is an area where I had done some work already prior to... Uh, um, to um, to jumping into the technology kind of topic. And uh, I, I find it incredibly fascinating because I think, you know, 
who we are, what we want to be, or, or who we think we are, or in the eyes of others, and all, all questions like that actually impact a lot of our behaviors. And because I'm a marketing researcher, right? So if you think about how do brands differentiate, I mean, the way that say Nike or Harley Davidson or, or you know Apple or any other uh, company, the strong brand they can think of. They, to a large extent, differentiate by giving people meaning in some way. You know, they uh, um, they affect the way they think about uh, the product way beyond the functional properties and, and capabilities of the product that they sell. You know, you don't buy Nike, you know, um, sweater with a big swoosh logo because it's functionally superior to the competition. I, that's not the reason. So there's other stuff that go on. And I think in many industries where, you know, there's a lot of product quality where, you know, functional differentiation is very hard to achieve and often short-lived, because, you know, competitors can do the same. And in this kind of very competitive environments, oftentimes these kind of associations and and brand power that come with understanding and, and helping people to fulfill some psychological need, you know, they are you know, what makes, you know, the margins, particularly of a lot of organizations. Um, so I, I find it both as a, as a person, basically, and as a researcher, decision scientist, as a marketing professor, I think it's a cool topic. And so uh, I came to the topic of technology actually through that. So the first project I did, they were all around identity and uh, and uh, technology in the space. And uh, at that time, I can give you some background, actually. I wanted to write a paper about how AI is impact consumer identity. And then I thought back, you know, 10 years ago, this is too futuristic. It's too far-fetched. You know, there are not a lot of applications out there that consumer can directly interact with AI. And I thought when I send it to an academic journal for publication, they'll tell me, you know, whatever, this is kind of not there. You know, it's too far, too far out. And then uh, I thought, okay, let me, let me then think about how to frame it more broadly, which I think is, you know, a generally good thing. And I thought, okay, actually, this is not about AI. This is about automation. So this will work for um, you know a um, very high tech solution as much as it works for you know a um, coffee machine or mm. you know a lot of other tools that we use in the whole house already. So I thought, let me write a paper about automation. Now, the academic cycle is so long, mm-hmm. you know, it takes so long to publish because they ask you to revise and revise, and you go through all these rounds. So eventually, by the time the paper got published, actually everybody was talking only about AI. So I wish, you know, <laughs> that worked out. I wish actually that uh, the paper had been about AI. But the uh, uh, the idea uh, is simple, and uh, it's that um, when you think about uh, tasks that you perform as a consumer in any of the activities that you may uh, you know engage in on an everyday basis, um, some of these activities you perform for purely instrumental reasons. You know, you want to get job job done. Vacuum cleaner, typically, you just use it because you want to clean the floor. But there are a lot of activities that you perform partly because that's who you are. You know, they have a symbolic meaning to you. They signify something about you to yourself or to other people, right? So you may have a hobby, like maybe, um, you know, maybe you like fishing or you like, uh, you know, photography or you like cooking or whatever. And uh, when you perform a task, at least to some extent, because that's who you are, then automation can become a threat to you because now it's replacing you in tasks that actually are meaningful to you beyond the uh, you know, chore, beyond the instrument. So 
what we um, study in that paper, we are showing that the reason why that threat emerges is that once you have now the AI performing some of these identity important tasks, let's call them, now you're no longer able as a consumer to attribute the outcome of consumption. And so imagine that you are really into baking and now you have a bread baking machine and now you make the bread that way. And now the bread comes out, and but now it's not your bread. It's not you who made it. Now it's the machine who made it. And the inability to say, this is me, this is my labor, is threatening to people who identify in the category of baking in this particular case. So the key here to understand which automation is going to be threatening or not is to understand, A, why do people engage in a task, right? To what extent it has a symbolic meaning or not. If it doesn't, then people probably just want, you know, easy and speed and, uh, and uh, thing like that. So the automation is all great. We love automation, right, in most cases. And so that's the first question. Why do they do it? And second, understand the role of that particular task that you're thinking of automating in the context of that identity. So, for example, going back to baking, in baking you have largely two tasks. You have the task of uh, preparing the dough, which requires quite a lot of labor. You have to knead the dough, and it's a repetitive task. It takes some labor. And uh, um, not particularly, not a lot of skill, you know, a bit of skill, of course, but not, not so much. I mean, I, I don't know how to bake, but I can eat it all. Uh, but then you have the cognitive skills of deciding the ingredients and the uh, temperature and the timing and, uh, and all of that. And, and that takes, that's more difficult. That's more diagnostic of someone who's really into baking because that's really, you know, if you don't know how to bake, you're not going to be able to do it. And so if you think about these two activities, more physical, more cognitive, and you have two potential machines that automate either. One is like one of those, let's say, KitchenAid dough needy machines. And the other one is something like, you know, a bread baking machine, which will be a big display. And you ask what kind of bread do you want? And then it tells you what to do with it. Um, well, you know, the second one is going to be threatening to someone who is into baking for identity reasons. But the first one might not. You know, in fact, a lot of I know a lot of people are into baking. They love those dough needy machines because it saves them the physical labor on needing the dough, and it doesn't threaten the sense of self because that task does not distinguish someone who really knows how to bake from someone who really doesn't. And so, that differential impact also then uh, spills over to this idea of uh, you know attributing the outcome to yourself. So these are basically the two questions. Imagine that you're a company, you're investing in innovation, and you want to know which attribute or task we, we should we try to automate or should earmark for further automation. You ought to first understand what your users are doing, uh, why they're performing particular activities and how to do that. And second, you have to perform, for those who are potentially identity motivated, you have to understand what role that specific uh, activity plays in the identity. And it may be under threat, it may be not by automation. So I think this is something that just requires a bit of thinking, a bit of data, essentially requires insight into consumer behavior. And the, the thing is, if you don't do that, the risk that you're running into is that now you have your most advanced product, right? This is the latest tech, most automated product. These are the most expensive products in your range, right? These are the fanciest product you have. Mm -hmm. And you make them unattractive to whom? To the segment of consumers who are most involved in the category, who are most right. in love with the product, who are most willing to pay for high-end products. You see? Right. So you're now making all your effort to do something really at the high end, mm -hmm. and you're bigger annoying those who are...
buying that kind of stuff. So uh, then the danger is that the product will flop in the market. And there are plenty of examples. And I think our effect is probably playing a role in all of those failures. Absolutely. I, it kind of ties into something else that you've talked about, which is human or AI versus human and AI, right? Um, I've seen it play out with startups um, already is, is the ones that claim to automate a role. I've seen struggle to get traction. The ones that I've seen augment a role or, or market themselves as augmenting or supporting a role, taking care of the busy or, you know, uh, more diminutive tasks within that role succeed a little bit more. Would you say that that's kind of that paradigm of human or AI versus human and AI? I think a lot of the conversation around AI, uh, I mean, we mentioned already at the beginning that has this kind of like a very, um, you know, panicky kind of feeling to it. You know, uh, you read some news, you think everybody's going to get unemployed and it's nothing, it's going to be nothing for us to, to do. With it. And, um, you know, you can understand where that's come from because a lot of conversations are about, uh, you know, AI now doing this, AI now doing that. And when they do this and they do that, they do them instead of people, right? They're often, we're not talking about things that we were never doing, you know, the things that we were doing. And some of them, the things that we didn't want to do, you know, like a robotic vacuum cleaner, great. I mean, I was complaining about that. But, you know, there are lots of other things that may feel, especially in the professional domain, right, where people's livelihood is at stake, they might be kind of threatening. So um, if you take the way that the engineers would think, they see a task out there, and then they build an AI system. So imagine, you know, a supervised learning system where you have labeled data and you can make predictions based on... Uh, you know, prior user behavior or something. I think self-driving cars are a good example. How do you come up with a self-driving car? Well, you're not going to script all the rules of everything that might happen on the road. You're not doing that. You know, we tried, but it's impossible. It's too complex. What we do instead is that we follow drivers as they drive, and we record all the data from the driver's behavior and all the sensors and the inputs in the car from, you know, the location to the LiDAR or, so, or you know, um, cameras or whatever it is that, uh, uh, you know, that, that the machine is equipped with, and you store all that. And then what you do is that you build a predictive model that takes all those uh, uh, inputs and tries to predict the driver behavior. And eventually, it will learn to do what a driver would do. So a lot of AI systems are really learning to imitate the human. That's what the way that a lot of this stuff works. There are different types of AI, you know, reinforcement learning. I mean, there's a lot of different types of AI, but a lot of them are of this variety. And uh, so they are naturally tailored to this idea of replacing the human. They're copying the humans so they can take care of the task, they can take the task. And uh, I think that's, you know, very important and useful. I can't wait for self-driving cars to, to really be everywhere, but uh, as an example. But it's also a very limited way of thinking about it. I mean, the, the, in many situations, what we ought to be thinking more about is what AI can do to make us more productive, more successful, you know, it should be about human flourishing. It shouldn't be about human replacement. And uh, there's a lot of potential that uh, we can tap into that. And I think we need that conversation to also include behavioral scientists, psychologists, business experts, because it's about domain expertise. Now, if you want to devise uh, an AI system that enhances human skills, you can't develop it in isolation from a human. You can't just take, okay, what is a human doing and doing it uh, instead? That's uh, the, um, you know, human or AI mindset, I call it. The human AI and AI mindset requires you to be out there, figure out what people do, what they can do, what they can do better with the support of AI, and then design that system, right? So it cannot be just an engineering problem 
I mean, ultimately, it is an engineering problem, but it cannot be devised purely from an engineering angle. You need that domain expertise and that uh, behavioral science. Right. That makes total sense. And, and so let's say that you've done that work, right? And you, you've created a product that, that augments this task. If you're the marketer tasked with, you know, the role of messaging this product, how do you effectively communicate to consumers that this is not a replacement? I mean, if it is not a replacement, yeah, I will. Yeah, assuming it's not, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so I think you would have to, in that sense, it's not any different from any other product in a way where mm -hmm. you'll have to explain to the consumer what's the benefit the consumer stands to gain. Right. And then make a case for, uh, you know, the value, mm -hmm. you know, the cost benefit trade-off. You know, and say, you know, what it is that I offer you that you cannot get somewhere else and that is going to make a difference to you if you're going to make you more successful completing this task. So it could be about productivity. It makes me faster. Right? So I can do what I used to do, but I can do it in half the time, which means that I can either go fishing or just do twice as much work. Right? So you know, either way is good. Or I can do what I'm doing the same amount of time and just do it a lot better. You know, so now instead of having a quality score on my output of 50, I have a quality score of 100. Wouldn't that be great? So, so I think there's this aspect of efficiency and this is aspects of effectiveness, you know, like doing things quicker, more efficiently, doing things better and more effectively. And I, I think those are quite different. I think the same technology can actually give you both. The first data that are coming out from the labs that we see now, there's been an explosion of interest around generative AI. And the first data that I see coming out they often show very large improvements in productivity. So, for example, people would say complete a task in, you know, in uh, with a productivity gain of twenty percent, forty percent, fifty percent, you know, up to even half the time almost. And then um, at the same time, they also often find results on quality. Like maybe you know they do that in half the time at twenty percent better quality. And so, as a marketeer, you'll have to think about how do I frame this product? Right? Is it about giving people time? Is it giving people powers? Right? So you give power in some way in any case. But I mean, how do you want to market it? So I think I can see that two different angles that companies may have products that can achieve both, but in some way the marketing strategy may need to focus on one. Um, and for that, you have to understand the customer. You know, what is it that I'm going to promise to them? What can I deliver to them? And what's going to be differentiated from competition? You know, um, maybe there are other ways to save time, but this is cheaper. Or maybe there are other ways to save time, but they mean, you know, much worse output, whereas I can give you less time, more, you know, more free time and better output. You know, whatever it is, your, you know, your claim of advantage, you need to understand the consumer in order to be able to make it. For the same technology, many different positionings may be viable, you know. Mm. No, it makes a ton of sense. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, you're always selling to humans, right? So the, the core problem remains the same. I mean, the core of marketing is the same. And ultimately, actually, I think that the basics, you know, we, the world is changing very fast. The only thing is not changing very fast is our brain. But, you know, we have evolved over a very long period of time. So we, we, our basic psychological processes are always the same, although, you know, the context is very different. Right, right. The, kind of extending that, um, you know, you mentioned kind of ChatGPT being this revolutionary uh, tool in that it got so much traction so quickly, right? Um, that being the case, obviously, these tools are going to continue evolving, continue growing in their scope. How do you kind of see the next frontier of human labor 
when it comes to the roles, the jobs that might emerge from this tech? I mean, that's a very difficult question. Yes, yes, <laughs> very open-ended question. I think first thing I would say, it's important to realize that I think this technology is going to make a massive difference to a lot of different um, activities and jobs, even if it doesn't get any better. It doesn't have to get better for this to be disruptive in lots of contexts. We are just figuring out what we can do with it. It take decades, presumably, before we fully understand how to reorient uh, you know, workflows, tasks, job profiles, train the people to do it. I mean, it's going to take a long time. The investments are required and, uh, you know, the, the um, change in corporate culture and uh, change in, you know, organizational processes, all of that is going to take a long time, probably much longer than it takes to actually develop the technology, I think. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we have to see. But in terms of, you know, what kind of jobs, I think it's very hard to be concrete, of course. In, and if I knew, probably I shouldn't be here talking to you, but I should be here, no. <laughs> do it. But I, I would say that there are some, just purely based on the architecture of uh, our AI systems, you can maybe speculate on some of the capabilities that they may struggle to acquire. That doesn't mean they won't acquire them. Right? So nobody can make a promise about what AI is going to look five, ten years. Honestly, next year, I'll tell you. You know, that we've seen so many surprises. I have these slides in my course where I show what AI cannot do. And I, you know, I tell you, I had to revise that quite quickly. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't bet on that. But, but there are certain things based just around the nature of the things, how this is going to be relatively weak points. So, for example, um, generative AI models and diffusion models and transformer architecture, all of those models, okay, they are predicting the next word in the sentence based on a corpus of data. And the corpus of data is truly humongous. And what they do is truly incredible to me. Every day is like being in a sci-fi movie. It's amazing. But they are not optimized for truth. I mean, that's that's not what they are programmed to do and not what they can do well. So they are... So they will hallucinate. They, they, you know, they'll get better. You know, as, uh, there will be guardrails around them. There will be further f- feedback systems and modules added up in order to improve. For example, I could imagine Microsoft investing very heavily, and obviously Google is doing that too, in uh, how to use these chatbots for search. And when you, you know, if you go to a search engine, it's not because you want, you know, just to see what it says. You know, you want to go there because you want to know facts. You want to know the truth to some extent. Right? So that's important to you. And so the systems, if they want to be deployed in that industry, which is, you know, many billions a year industry, and so they will try to deploy there. Um, you know, every 1% market share that Bing takes from uh, Google is worth a ton of money. So they will pour in a lot, ton of money into it. So they get better. But... Uh, but they're still not designed like that. So I would say that anything that has to do with the veracity, either because that's the goal of the consumer or because the stakes are high. Right? So I had I saw an article I posted on LinkedIn just the other week where they were apparently you know automatically generated books yeah. on sale on Amazon, and right. some of them are about things like you know mushroom picking and foraging. Right. Well, I don't know that you want to have, you know, an AI telling you, yeah, you can eat that, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there are Good many situations where, you know, you will need uh, human gatekeepers to, to uh, you know, the human in the loop is going to remain important in a lot of this context, whether it mm-hmm. is medical AI, whether it is, you know, anything that has to do with safety standards. Okay, that's one. The other one is AI can make predictions based on the past. 
it's much harder to make predictions about how the future will be when you change something in the present. Meaning these systems are not built for counterfactual reasoning. But we can do a lot of that. We can Im- imagine in our minds, we can imagine how the world would be if today we don't do this, but we do that. What would happen if instead of go home to my family tonight, I go take a plane and fly to South America? Yeah. I can have some pretty ideas of what some of the reactions might be, you know? And so that you have this counterfactual reasoning. You can put yourself in that imaginary world. And, and so that's our power of imagination. And, uh, you know, AI can do, it can help, and we'll get better in those tasks too, I'm sure. Um, but it's still not a causal machine. Doesn't uh, the, you know? Doesn't think in that term. So, if you ask ChatGPT to make um, to give you some reasons why something can happen, in the corpus of data, we'll be able to interpolate sufficient information to be able to give you a pretty good answer. But if it's something that he hasn't seen, and I've seen some papers testing it in this way, it's not performing well at all. So, I would say that humans will still be. Uh, you know, very important in any task that require counterfactual reasoning and imagining new worlds in a way. So, that's, so of, of course, you know, I can uh, do a lot of things already in those domains, but I, I do think that there will be, you know, still scope for, uh, for human labor there. There will be a lot of tasks that are actually surprisingly hard to automate because they involve uh, fine motorics, because they uh, are not routinized at all, because the data are sparse, because the data are poor quality, because it's changing rapidly and all data are not very suitable to make predictions and so forth and so forth. So there will be a lot of jobs where it's just very hard to automate and at some point it might not be worth it to, to, to do it, even though potentially one could do it. It's just better to have human workers. Um, and then you have the leadership side, you know, um, AI will never tell you, or, you know, it won't tell you what you should want, right? So your values, your ethics, those will stay. So any jobs that will have to do that, any, I think any jobs that will require um, leadership and mentoring and things like that will, uh, um, again, AI can do a lot. So a math tutor can be great. And maybe the math tutor on Khan Academy can actually even motivate the learner to learn more. And it will be good at that too. But I think it's going to be hard to mimic the impact and maybe the right word in your ear, a shoulder on your hand, would be able to do. So that, that's, I think, it's, um, those are some speculations. But um, mm. I appreciate it. <laughs> I can't, I can't uh, you know, I, I wouldn't go on a limb and make a prediction very far into the future. I think we're talking yeah. about, you know, the midterm. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. I won't ask you what's going to happen in 2030. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um I like that you mentioned some of those limitations, right? Um, you've, you've, we've hinted a little bit about some of the the dangers uh, of AI deployed at scale without precautions, right? Um, it's not geared for truthfulness necessarily. Um, it can't deal with those counterfactuals, right? Can you elaborate on some of the you know safety concerns uh, that are that are pressing in this moment and how we could potentially address them? I think some of them we already talked about, like you know the mushroom case, like literally physical safety. Um, I have a couple of projects um, together. The, the, the projects are led by an amazing researcher at Harvard called uh, Julian De Freitas. And with them, we've been looking at relational AI. And, um, you know, people use 
uh, chatbots in ways that maybe the designers of the chatbot are not intending them to be used for. So there might be people with quite severe mental health issues that for some reason end up using these chatbots. And then the question is, is the chatbot able to you know, identify the mental health crisis and respond appropriately to it? So that's an element, for example, of safety. As these chatbots become, you know, they, they get disseminated through society very fast, there will be more questions of this kind where you may have, you know, um, you know, questions about what are the implications of uh, of this for, you know, safety, well-being, you know. And I hope that we'll do better than uh, with AI than we've done with social media. Right. I think the way that we let uh, this technology run through, I mean, this is still AI, right? Technology being able to predict what is going to capture your eyeballs and just stuck it there and keep it there. Um pandering to a lot of either our worst instinct or our more short-term desires, it's not, it's not, it's not, it has not been great. And a lot of great things about it, but I would say that the business model advertising in this context was quite uh, dangerous in some ways. So I'm hoping that with AI we do better. Now the question, will we? I don't know. But I'm afraid that if we get it wrong with AI, the price we will pay is very big. This technology is going to be so important to so many things that if we don't understand it properly, we don't uh, deploy it responsibly. We don't regulate it sensibly. You know, the, the, the dangers are going to be quite huge, actually. Absolutely. You, you mentioned social media, right? And, and it's something that I, I like that you tied that in because accurately, AI does drive the algorithms that determine what you see on social media, right? And those things are geared towards engagement. Um, that being the case, obviously, that has become kind of an optimizer for extreme content. Um, when it comes to generative AI, a lot of what I've heard um, people expressing concerns over is the potential flood of synthetic content onto the internet. Um, is that anything that, you, that you've thought about in the past? Do you have any thoughts regarding the impact that that could have? I mean, this is a very fun cartoon by Tom Fishburne where you see two panels. On the left panel, you have a person saying to a colleague, look, I'm sending an email I pretended to write. And then on the other side, there's another person telling a colleague, look, I, it is an email I'm pretending to read. So it's not, <laughs> you know, because they use AI to encode right. the message, to decode the message. So essentially, you know, there's going to be so much garbage uh, out mm-hmm. there that you'll have AI to produce a garbage and AI to screen out the, right. the garbage. So that's not great, right? So no. I'm hoping that we just don't end up using it. It's almost like, you know, um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, you'll see a lot of content. A lot of it will be bad content. The good thing would be that people who can produce real good content will also stand out um, potentially, you know, w- easier because, you know, a lot of the stuff that might be a barrier for you to find an audience may be solved through AI. For example, I think I'm excited about, also as a non-native English speaker, what AI can do to facilitate you know, the conversation with people who are not native English speakers and either don't speak English at all, but now can use a translator system or people who do uh, speak some uh, some English, but not just as well. And so they might be able to write stuff that other people want to read more than they would before. So I think there is also a lot of great things about it, obviously. Um, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I um so out of respect for your time, I'm going to wrap us up here shortly, but I do want to ask before we leave, what is kind of one thing from your your learnings, your research, um, kind of anything that you can pull from that 
you want to kind of leave us with that you find exciting, that you find just deeply academically interesting regarding AI? Um, I know that's okay. open-ended. Okay, no, no. I'm, uh, so when I talk to companies about uh, advanced analytics programs, you know, uh, trying to deploy algorithms in this and that process, these projects fail often, but they never fail for technical reasons. It's always the people. You know, it was. it's not clear why we're doing this. It's not clear who should be doing it. It's not clear, you know, what the responsibilities are. There is a barriers to adoption. People on the floor feel threatened by it or they just don't like it or it's taking more time to them or they don't see the reason or whatever. And they fail to adopt it. They sometimes even boycott it or whatever. And so um, the issues tend to be with the user or, or lack of users, not so much with whether the techniques works. Typically, if you have research documenting a certain capabilities in an algorithm, for example, I mean, this algorithm can reduce uh, you know, mean square error in a prediction. Okay, those things are usually correct. I mean, they, they, they will work out again. And uh, the problem is, okay, will the person decide to switch from that old algorithm to the new algorithm? That's a bigger question, I think. And so in a way, I, I just want to call for companies to think about the role of psychology in uh, technology which is something that we tend to forget because, you know, technology is pushed by, you know, engineers and computer scientists and, and the person is, you know, often not them, you know, the, the main concern in some ways. So there's a lot of user research and, of course, the UX, uh, it's a big deal nowadays, but I still think there's a lot of room for, uh, for doing more of that and understanding how our psychology interacts with the, basically how our intelligence and intelligence of machines combines and intersect. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can't wait to see, you know, the research and, and new learnings that come out of that field. And I'm very glad that you're pushing forward into that, you know, kind of unknown space. Uh, Stefano, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Um, where can people find you, follow you? You can find me on LinkedIn. You can Google my name and find my Wharton page, uh, our AI at uh, Wharton portal we are designing right now. We have a, you know, a temporary version, but we'll have a richer website in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, yeah, reach out on LinkedIn or elsewhere. Perfect. Thank you so much, Stefano. Thank you for having me. Oh, likewise.